0: Alright, well I'm gonna repeat the welcome that, uh, that Kevin already gave. Good morning, Meadowbrook Baptist Church. Alright, good job. Happy 4th of July. It is, uh, it is a distinct pleasure to be with you today because I'm able to be with you in person, uh, which is nice. I was able to take a few days leave. ...from my current military obligation and assignment right now in Austin, Texas. So I am especially glad to be here this morning. Well, it is July 4th, a national holy day for our country. And although it is not a Christian holiday, and by this I mean it is not a holy day celebrated as part of the Christian calendar... Its focus on freedom and release from oppression and from oppressive structures is clearly, I hope you will see, clearly applicable to the Christian life. And so as we thank God for a nation where we are free to gather Together and to worship the Lord according to the dictates of our faith, and by that I mean according to what the Bible says. Uh, let us keep in mind the true freedom that we have in Christ. And I've entitled the messages, and you can see that on the slide there. Uh I've entitled the message True Freedom. And what I want us to do is consider a passage that is found in Galatians that speaks to freedom and then consider the ramifications of that freedom for our lives. But let me, let me step off script for just a moment and, uh, and just say at, at our house we have two things attached to the front of the house uh one is a uh, a flag pole for the United States flag and uh and we leave it out there flying when uh when there's good weather sometimes in bad weather and uh and have to replace the flag occasionally but we have a place for the U- United States flag and attached to the front of the house I have a uh, a large metal replica of the uh the crest for the Chaplain Corps for the United States Army and you may or may not know this, but the saying for the chaplain corps is pro deo et patria. That is for God and country. And uh, and as a chaplain, of course, I serve first God and second country, but I serve both, and those go well together. And so as we consider uh, the meaning of this holiday, let us consider... Uh, what being in a country where we have uh, freedom to do just what we're doing right now, gather together as God's people to worship him in spirit and in truth just uh, consider how unique that is in the world and how special and how important it is. Because I think as uh, anyone who has spent time overseas uh, on the mission field or serving in the military or even in business can testify to, not all people have this kind of freedom and this sort of opportunity uh, that we have. So let's thank God for that. Well, let's read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, if you will turn in your Bible there to Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And I'll ask you to stand one more time uh, for the reading of God's word, if you are able. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note. I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law... Are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For through the spirit by faith. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor nor uncircumcision. Accomplishes anything. What matters is faith. Working through love. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to each of us through that word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to move amongst us as your people, drawing us closer to you, and by doing so, drawing us closer to one another in spirit and in truth. We pray uh, that you would help me to get out of the way. I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, we confess our sins to you now thanking you for the forgiveness that you offer to us in Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, as we uh, consider it, we pray that uh, you would come alive to us and speak to us, each one, even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the book of Galatians is one of the most tightly argued books in the Bible. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the churches in the region of Galatia in modern-day Turkey in order to address uh, a particularly contentious issue that had arisen in the early church. And the gospel itself was at stake. So in order for us to understand uh, uh, understand what we just read and in order to accurately reflect on the implications of the passage we just read, I think we do need to survey briefly the chapters leading up to Paul's declaration in Galatians 5 where he says it's for freedom that Christ has set you free in many translations. Not the translation I read, but in many translations. So I hope you have your Bibles out and are following along, because I'm just going to summarize what has preceded Galatians 5. So in chapter 1, Paul reminds his readers that the gospel is from God and not men, and that his calling to preach the gospel comes from Christ, and is not dependent upon the approval of mere humans, not even the apostles themselves. The authority with which he speaks is divine in origin. And what this suggests is that there were some in the early church, some in Galatia, challenging Paul's message and questioning his qualifications to preach. And this sets up Paul's argument. And then in chapter 2, then, Paul begins to actually address a problem that has arisen. He says, some false Brothers, as he calls them, have infiltrated the church in order to, and he says this, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ so that they can enslave Christians. Do you hear the language of freedom and enslavement here? That's in chapter 2, verse 4. And so Paul goes on to relate the story of a confrontation that he had with the apostle Peter at Antioch. When Peter and, following his example, all the Jews present refused to eat at table with Gentiles. In essence, then they were all trying to live according to the laws and the traditions, and more importantly, Paul says they were effectively denying the, uh, denying that the gospel denying that the gospel makes all people equal before God. And Paul sees this approach to the religious life as an affront to God's plan and a rejection of the gospel. It is a setting aside of the grace of God and a dependence upon law to be justified in chapter 2 verse 21, right? So one's seeking to justify oneself. So dependence upon law to justify Uh, devolves into a dependence upon self to justify because it's dependent on one's own actions. But the gospel, of course, depends upon God for salvation, the work of God, the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, not on our own efforts. And so then in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say this dependence upon God for salvation and on the grace of God has been the plan of God all along to justify all peoples, all nations, all peoples through Abraham's seed, right? Through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. And while it's called a new covenant, it is not a new plan, Not plan B, as if God got something wrong at the beginning and had to adjust course. Rather, God's establishment of Israel to bring salvation to humanity through Christ always included the gospel and was always available and open and making the door open to all peoples. And so in chapter 4, then, Paul seeks to bring this together By drawing an analogy between law and gospel on the one hand and Sarah and Hagar, right? The two women who bore sons to Abraham, the father of Judaism. Those who want to follow the law, those who want, uh, who want to, uh, force all Christians to follow all of the law as epitomized in circumcision are like the children of Hagar, the slave woman whose child was conceived through the effort of man or of man trying to take control of things. But by contrast, Right? True Christians are like the children of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who miraculously conceived Isaac in her old age according to grace and the promise of God. And so in short, then, chapters 1 through 4, in those chapters, Paul has been developing an argument against the notion that in order to be saved, one must perform certain actions of the law, and that salvation is dependent upon obedience of the law. And this is what gets us to chapter 5. It's here where we come to our passage from chapter 5. And so in verse one, Paul makes a starting, startling claim. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What does this mean? Well, in the immediate context that we've just been tracing, right, it means that, uh, that the believers in Galatia in the first century should not be persuaded by the so-called Judaizers who wanted the Gentile Christians to accept circumcision, to follow all the prescriptions of the Old Testament law in order to be saved. It means that the gospel, that is the good news, is that salvation is not dependent upon obedience to the law. As if, so long as one fulfills all the obligations of the law, God is obligated to save him or her. And as you might guess, and as we probably know, right? the problem with this line of thinking, that we can put God in a position of obligation by following the law, the problems with this is multi. Faceted, multi-layered, right? First, it assumes that God can be placed in a position of obligation, right, to creatures, right, through the efforts of those creatures. But of course, that's not the case, right? The only one who can place God in a position of obligation is God himself, right? He does so by making promises and he, he can do that because he is perfect and he knows the future and he knows what he's going to do and he is truth. Right? Incarnate. Truth itself. So it fails to... It, it, it makes the mistaken notion that we can place God in a position of obligation. Second, it fails to recognize that we all fall short of sinless perfection anyway. We do not meet the obligations of the law because we all sin. And the obligation of the law uh, is that we be sinlessly perfect. And we simply fall short. Third, and more than that, even in our acts of righteousness, even when we do things that are good, right? when we do them in our own strength, not in the strength of the Spirit, those acts themselves, those so-called acts of righteousness, those good acts, they themselves are not righteous because they have tinges of selfish motive undergirding them at some level. So at heart then, This notion places a great burden upon us, as the Apostle Paul says in verse 3. Did you notice the words he says? He says, every man who gets himself circumcised, he, he, he makes himself obligated to keep the entire law, right? It places a great obligation upon us. And this is a burden that we simply cannot, we're unable to fulfill, And thus, and I think this is sort of the important point for us here, if we can't meet the obligation that we have taken on, it's going to lead to futility, frustration, guilt, resentment, depression, and even anger. Rather than bringing us closer to God, it actually has the opposite effect. As the Apostle Paul says in verse 4. Do you see what he says there? You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You're alienated. And this is why grace is so important. And why the Apostle Paul sees this as having to do with the very heart of the gospel itself. And saying that the gospel itself is at stake God's grace and forgiveness set us free from a system of quid pro quo with God whereby we can never give as much as we receive, right? We can't even give anything close to or or approximating to what we receive and have already received from God. It also sets us free from a false way of thinking that is destructive of our spirits and souls because it it blinds us to the truth of the power of Christ's substitutionary and sacrificial death. It blinds us to it. So what is this true freedom that I'm speaking of? Well, let me begin by saying, and I know I'm not really just beginning. You don't, don't get too scared when I say that word. Uh, but let me begin by saying a word about what it is not. Many of us, I think, ma- many of us, me included, okay, me included, when we first hear the word freedom, we think of something related to, sh- to choice or self-determination, don't we? After all, a vital aspect of the American experience or the ethos, of America is the notion of rugged self-determination, right? In many ways, an attitude of this sort is what has made our country great. It was a sense of self-determination combined with a belief that God had raised up our nation that drove many settlers west. Freedom to make one's own choices uh, undergird the 18th century resistance to England's edicts and taxation policies as well. Of course, monetary concerns uh, played a role, but exclusion from representation in national decision making was the biggest objection that the founders had with King George and Parliament. Many of us believe Choice sits at the root of freedom. In fact, I recently wrote a chapter for a book uh, of some former colleagues of mine who were editing uh, this book. The focus of my chapter was on the philosophical and biblical notions of freedom and choice. And some of you may be aware, Christian theologians and philosophers disagree over the kind of freedom with respect to choice and action that humans have. I won't bore you too much with the details, but let's just say that some argue that we have the ability, uh, at least some of the time, to choose between competing courses, uh, competing alternatives or courses of action. Right? This view of freedom is known as libertarian freedom. Others, though, argue that we really can only choose one option. Right? The option that we most want or desire. But since it is what we want, We're still morally responsible for our choice nonetheless, and it is free. This view of freedom is known as compatibilism. And while at least I find all of this quite interesting, it is not primarily, right, what Paul speaks of when he speaks of us being free in Christ. Paul is not concerned about one's ability with respect to choosing like where you're going to eat lunch after service today. No, as we've already seen, what Paul is concerned with, true freedom, according to God's word, is the freedom we have in Christ, the freedom we have from sin. And it is, I'm going to use that word again, a multifaceted freedom. So what does it look like briefly? Well, first, we are set free from the power of sin in our own lives. And this is a three-stage process which many of us know, what we call salvation. The first stage is forgiveness from our past sins, right? When we repent of our sins and we accept Jesus as our Lord, he saves us by declaring us not guilty for the sins that we have committed. We are set free from guilt, right? The second stage Uh, is a present empowerment to turn from sins, a cleansing of our desires, a renewing of our desires, uh, uh, so that we no longer find desirable those things that used to entice us or that even seemed to defeat us no matter how hard we tried to stop doing them. When we repent of our sins and we accept Christ as our Lord, right? uh, we are not only declared not guilty of our past sins, but we are also born again and God's Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. He lives within us and part of the work of the Holy Spirit in us is to make us holy and pleasing to God. And so there's a process of growth in holiness. And this process of growth in holiness is known as sanctification. And it frees us from sinful structures and habits that we have allowed to develop in our lives. Sometimes those that we have fed daily in our lives. Most people have a weakness. You know, what we might call a kryptonite of sorts. For some... It's a, it's a, it is addiction to alcohol. For others, to drugs. Others, pornography. For others, it is addiction to success at the expense of everything else. Right? For some, it's grasping at power. Some, it's grasping at wealth. For some, it's uh, a habit where they even find their worth in others. But God's Spirit can set us free from any and all of these destructive tendencies. The third stage is a future restoration of the physical realm. At a personal level, it's a promise of, restor- uh, a promise of restoration and resurrection from the dead. This life is not all there is. And these bodies with all their weaknesses, frailties, pains and aches and the like... These are not the final state, right? And so we re- when we repent of our sins and we accept Jesus as Lord, we are granted eternal life with God. And this is why the Apostle Paul notes that Christians do not grieve uh, as those in the world grieve when when they lose a loved one, right? We grieve, but we don't grieve as those in the world because we have a future hope. In Romans chapter 7, then, Paul describes the ongoing struggle with sin, noting that there are times when when he finds himself doing exactly the opposite of what he really wants to do. He feels trapped by his own sinful inclinations, enslaved by them to the point of frustration and even despair. Right? He says, who will save me from this body of death and then he answers right thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ second we're set free from sinful ways of thinking and viewing the world and I've already hinted at this and alluded to this but many of us let's just face it many of us have a warped view of reality (laughs) many of us see things wrongly including the ways we see ourselves Many many of us are enslaved to a worldly outlook, whether with respect to our views of success or our views of our own personal worth. But the gospel frees us from those false viewpoints. No longer businessman or businesswoman. Must you measure success based upon the size of your bank account or the power that you have over others in your workplace? Right, that money's not going to do you much good after you're dead anyway, so it doesn't matter. But no, but you're set free from that way of viewing success. No longer, young person, must you measure your personal worth based upon whether you have the right clothes or the right hairstyle or the right friends or like the right things or on the right social media platform or have enough likes on your. Media platform or whatever they, you get these days. God says that you are valuable to Him just as you are. You are beautiful to Him just as you are. You are made in His image and that speaks much more to your worth than any pair of jeans or shoes or any popularity contest. You are secure in Christ no longer victim of abuse must you find your worth in the approval of your abuser you are of inestimable worth to god so much so so much so that he bought you with his own blood you are set free from those destructive patterns and viewpoints and are a new creation In Christ. So true freedom. True freedom. That is freedom in Christ is a turning from sinful actions, yes, but also sinful outlooks through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and a turning to the way of God. God loves each and every one of you. Us, right? And he wants you to have life abundantly. And he's provided for that by offering forgiveness, cleansing, and renewal. A renewal that Paul says, a renewal of our minds that is transformative. Right? Paul writes in Romans 12 that in Christ's substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross, we can be renewed in our minds to put off old ways of thinking and think rightly, see the world as God sees it. We are united with Christ in his death through faith so that we can be united with him in a new life, a life of true freedom. And it is this sacrifice and union by faith that we commemorate then in the taking of uh of the bread and the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper. And so at this time I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward. Uh, they're going to come forward to serve communion uh, to each of you at the front here. Uh, we'll ask uh I'm going to ask our platform party to come uh, first, but we'll ask uh, you all to come forward out of your seats to receive communion. We also uh, will have a team who will be uh, bringing the prepackaged communion element sets to you at your seat if you wish. You'll just want to indicate that by raising your hands. Uh, but let me just uh, say a word of prayer over uh, our communion time and then we will begin our time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for uh, his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood so that we can have new life. We pray that as we partake communion that uh, this holy time be, would be a time of remembrance and a time of, uh, of rededication of our lives to you in freedom and in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.